Welcome to episode 79 of Off the Shelf. I want to welcome James Manuel once again to the Off the Shelf podcast. James lives in Cape Town, South Africa, and spent 40 years in the message. He believed it. He lived it. He preached it. The message was all that he, his wife, and his children knew. It was his life. Since leaving the message 10 years ago in 2012, James has had a mission to expose the lies, deception, fraud, and corruption in the message wherever and whenever he gets the opportunity. He has challenged message ministers all over the world. We interviewed James over three years ago on the Off the Shelf podcast, and you can listen to that first interview on episode 50. James, welcome back to Off the Shelf. Thank you, Rod, um, Emily, and Tim. It is such a privilege to engage in a conversation with all of you. I must mention that I'm very grateful for this opportunity. No, we're really glad to have you, James. And also with me, as James mentioned today, are Emily Arndt and Tim Krause, our co-hosts. Hi, guys. How are you? I, I will add, Emily has actually visited South Africa and met with James personally. So, uh, Emily, you might give a little bit of background for that. I did. I had a chance to actually spend a few days with James and his family as a very lovely wife and great daughters and had a chance to explore Cape Town a little bit and have some fish and chips together and just hang out. And And uh, James was surprised how... Uh, tall I was I guess that was the we kind of you know meeting people off the internet uh, James is exactly who he says he is I don't know if he could say the same for me hopefully but uh, definitely James is like wow you're tall (laughs) (laughs) so but it was it was lovely I would go back and uh, visit him and his family in a heartbeat that was it was a very lovely time that's wonderful James, let's get started. You indicated on our last interview that you were in the Seven Thunders movement. Last year, we interviewed Alicia Moreno, who was raised in the Seven Thunders movement. How long were you in the Seven Thunders, uh, James? Were you in it until you came out of the message? Rod, yes. But I have to qualify that statement. Before I embraced the so-called revelation of the Seven Thunders, I was mostly aligned with the mainstream message groups. In the 70s and 80s, I fellowshiped in churches that are regarded as mainstream message churches. One pastor that may be well known uh, to some is Harold Beckett. In the 1980s, I was his song leader, and I used to transport all the visiting ministers from overseas. Some of the names that come to mind are Lonnie Jenkins, Morris Ungren, the guy who sang at all uh, William Branham's uh, campaigns, and Bob Brown, uh, a very popular um, uh, proponent of the um, Perugia movement. Yeah. I had the wonderful opportunity to sit in the company of these men and host them at our home of the services. It was from about 1990 that I started going to a church that preached the thunders. So by default, I became a thunder boy. 
<laughs> Even then, <laughs> I was always a moderate message believer who tried to walk in the middle of the road. So from your perspective, James, what were the distinctives of the Seven Thunders movement? I, how did it differ from what you call mainstream message? Well, the, the mainstream message folk is more um, moderate, um, quiet. Um, in the services, you will not find, uh, let's say, a set of drums. The music would normally be an organ, a piano. The hand clapping would be very slow. Um, and, you know, there'll be an amen here and there and a praise the Lord here and there. Whereas in the Seventh Thunder group, it was like a, a wild Pentecostal group. Um, whenever the minister preaches, the people would run up to the pulpit and, you know, with their fists in the air, they would hit towards the pulpit. Some of them would hit the pulpit. Um, and then during the service, people would get slain and there'd be noise. And it was, it's, it's, it's really a noisy bunch. So from the mainstream, they, they like very, very extreme from the, from the mainstream message believers. So it was, it was much more charismatic Pentecostal in its uh, approach to worship. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and yeah, the, the, um, even the ministers, I mean, uh, those guys would take off their jackets, they would roll up their sleeves, and they would build up a sweat. And, you know, they all preach till the foam comes to the side of their mouths. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> the people won't allow the minister to finish his sermon. Because, and you know, and then they call it the, the anointing fell or the Holy Ghost fell or the Holy Ghost took the service over. And people would be just everywhere, lying everywhere. And, you know, everybody's got to run around uh, covering sisters that expose themselves. And um, the, the, uh, the, the big difference also with the Seventh Thunder movement is that the sisters are the ushers. You know, they run around with blankets. And, and when, when they do, the brothers must give way because they take control of the service when the slaying and stuff starts. Yeah. I, I, I did a, a lot of traveling and I, I would say, you know, there were a number of maybe what you would call mainstream. Uh, like I was in Trinidad a number of times and I wouldn't say they were uh, wildly extreme, but they would be have considered uh, by someone walking off the street to be more uh, Pentecostal in their approach. Yeah, there's there, there's been a lot of uh, that kind of groups as well. There's one particular group. Um, they they were under the influence of an American minister, and, and you'd probably know the name, Stephen Shelley. Um, oh, yeah. Those guys um, were ex extreme, but in another way. Um, the preacher, when he comes to the pulpit, he would grab his tie off his neck, <laughs> and he would walk with he would walk with a tie in his hand, you know, at one hand in the pocket, the tie swinging in the other hand, and the sisters would be prophesying all the time and taking the services over, like really, really wild. I sh I should mention, uh, Vin Dial. It was just reported, uh, and this is from the news yesterday. Pastor Vin Dial, Vinworth Dial appeared before a magistrate in the port of Spain yesterday. So that would have been July the 1st or 2nd. 
on charges that alleged um, that on December the 31st, 2019, he possessed criminal property in the amount of $28 million in Trinidad Tobago currency and has been charged with criminal conduct contrary to the Income Tax Act, knowing or having reasonable grounds to suspect that those proceeds were criminal property. So he's got wow. an, and a, and a second charge in in terms of another amount of two point almost seven million, almost two point seven million Trinidadian dollars dollars, which the police I think seized from his house on January the second, twenty twenty. So these are um, charges that were laid under the Proceeds of Crime Act in the in Trinidad, and he was released on ten million dollars bail and had to surrender his passport. Well, well, he had the $10 million laying around though, right? No, no, the government <laughs> seized all that. The government seized all that. And I'll put a link, I'll put a link to this. There's a picture of the money. He had 28 file boxes of cash. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. And this is the problem. I'm sure he doesn't think he's done anything wrong, but message ministers, pastors, consider the money to be their own. And so when they do that and they take it under their own uh, and treat it as their own, from from an income tax perspective, that can be construed as basically appropriating the property, which means you have to pay tax on it. And if you didn't pay tax on it, you're guilty of criminal tax evasion. And I expect that's uh, the way they're going to they're going to attack him. Uh, that's it's very interesting to note yep it is it is and you know with with that amount of money there's a lot of explaining to be done um i'm 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 sure i um had that post up today and someone was uh, complaining um that you know he came clean if if there was if it was dirty money he would have handed it in i said no 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 he handed it in because the notes that he had became obsolete they had to change it for new notes. Um, and that is the only reason. Otherwise, he would have held on to it. Yeah, he he didn't turn it into the government. He basically said, I would like to exchange this for real money because as of December the 31st, 2020, the money was no longer uh, valid as currency because the, the Trinidadian government basically came out with a, a plastic note, which is used in a lot of countries now because it's a lot harder to counterfeit. And so those old paper notes were being, they became, they were going to become obsolete on January the 1st. And so he went down to the bank with 28 file boxes full of cash. Unbelievable. Crazy, crazy stuff for sure. So so, James, you're kind of talking about a little bit about your background in the message, and obviously you've rubbed shoulders with the likes of Lonnie Jenkins, you said, Morris Ungren. I remember seeing Morris Young Ungren. Uh, he'd come and preach up by us um, when I was growing up. And, you know, there's always the thing, well, you weren't in the right part of the message, so that's the reason you left the message and you hear these things. But you're you're rubbing shoulders with some pretty well-regarded, kind of like you say, mainstream uh, pastors. So what caused you to start questioning the message in the midst of all this? Yeah, Emily, in 2007, a sister 
sister, one of the sisters at church approached me randomly with a simple question. And it was, it was just this. Could you give me a direct quote where Brother Branham said that thunders were opened and a direct scripture that declares the same? You have to understand, by this time I was, res I was a respected student of the message and many regarded me as an expert when it involved the conduct, order and doctrines of the message. Message pastors recognized the gift in me to interpret the message in the simplest form. Big name message pastors like Edgar Roscoe here in South Africa sat in my lounge to convince me to come to his church. But here a simple question stumped me. I honestly couldn't answer and it bothered me greatly. Hmm. So what I did is I went to my pastor and asked him the same question. He could not answer either. So instead of um, admitting that he couldn't answer the question, he went to one of the elders, which was a good friend of mine. It was Brother Frank van Nikek. And he told Brother van Nikek very quietly behind my back, um, the two of us, Brother van Nikek and myself, used to have a, a, a mission work up in Paul about 70 kilometers from Cape Town. And we would go up there once a week and we would go and minister to those people. And he said to Brother Van Nikek, make sure that you don't let James preach because he doesn't believe the revelation of the seven thunders. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, Brother Van Nikek was upset and I was upset. But that was the kind of thing that made me look closer at the message um and you know with these um insistence that you know it's by revelation and my argument with him is that but that revelation must be explained you must show it um and he couldn't um and he just uh you know he wanted me to just accept that it had to come by revelation and I wasn't willing to do that. And that sent me on my way searching. And it took me all of five years, Emily, to really um, get to a stage where I had enough. Well, well, James, that's, you know, you started to question the message and you mentioned that it took you five years. Well, and a lot of us, when we leave the message, there's one event or one thing that actually triggers us that causes us ultimately to leave the message. What was that for you? Tim, many people left the message for various reasons. For some, it was because of false prophecies. For others, it was because of the false municipal bridge vision. Then for others, it was because of the South African Indian false, thus saith the Lord vision. For me, it was the cloud story. I remember vividly the mixed emotions I experienced when, this, when I discovered that the cloud story was a hoax. For all the time that I was in the message, I never hung a halo photo on my wall at home. 
Um, and and my argument was simple. When people ask me, message people ask me, why don't you have Brother Branham's photo on your wall? Um, and I would say to them, well, Brother Branham wasn't a member of my family. That's why his photo is not on my wall. But the cloud photo had a special place in my lounge. And whenever visitors came to our home, I would explain with great pride how seven angels came to visit my prophet while he was hunting with his friends. I would show them the eyes, the mouth, the nose, and, and just trust that they see what I'm seeing and explain the reason why, you know, why they came. It was to reveal the seven seals of revelation to the seventh church as messenger, to bring the seventh church to the seventh church of Laodicea. By the time I discovered that this story was a hoax, I was already doubtful of many things in the message, but I was holding on for dear life to William Branham. The cloud story hoax pushed me right over the edge. This discovery had a, mm, this discovery had a devastating effect on my life. So, so we hear a lot from ministers that basically tell us we leave the message because we can't handle the message or we can't live the message. That clearly wasn't the case in your case, I hear. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I was um, even even more so. Um, I held on to William Branham. By, by this time, I've kind of uh, left the ministers. I, I didn't trust them. I didn't believe them. But I held on to my prophet. And whatever he said, I believed. Um, the story that you backslidden, that you've left the message because you couldn't maintain the standards of the message, that is plain nonsense. Uh, Tim, when I started asking questions to message pastors, webmasters of message sites, and eventually Joseph Branham, and I saw how they ran for cover, no one could answer simple questions. I knew I came to the end of the message. I remember wow. the one webmaster. I think I sent I sent the um, I sent it to to Rod right in the early days. I think it was sometime in 2012. This one webmaster said to me, you have to make a choice. Either you believe William Branham or you believe Rod Bergen um, or Jeremy Bergen. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was the guys. I, you know, I said to him, I don't want to. You tell me. He says, no, you either believe Brother Branham or you believe those guys. And, you know, I left them. Hey, what's really interesting with your comment, uh, James, is that I actually... We never ask people on the website to believe us. We don't ask them to trust us. We basically present the facts and then present enough evidence that they can go and check it out for themselves because it's not about, oh, you have to believe me or you have to believe William Branham. No, it's look at the facts that William Branham presented. Look at everything that surrounded it, including you know, the facts that his daughter, Rebecca Smith, came out with. Uh, the facts the facts that, you know, Gene Norman, uh, who was who was with William Branham, was hunting and said, oh, you know, I, I heard the Big Bang and I looked up and I didn't see the cloud. But what I saw were two streaks in the air, like, like uh, from a jet plane, but I couldn't see the plane. Well, 
You know, back then, and we proved this from newspaper reports, which again are on the website, that people were complaining about sonic blast, airplanes breaking the sound barrier, which you never hear anymore. But back in the back in the 60s, that was not that in, uncommon. I can remember being in an elementary school and hearing a big bang, and we're all freaked out. We're looking around, what was it? We looked around and couldn't see anything. And our teacher told us, oh, a plane just broke the sound barrier overhead. And it would break windows. And that was something that happened because communism was a big threat. Everybody wanted to be ready. And so from time to time, uh, they broke the sound barrier above civilized areas. That's that's right. Yep. And, and you know, it's what, what's so sad is you have all the facts. You have everything in front of you. I, I cannot understand even today how people can look at it and still believe all that nonsense. The, the problem, James, is they actually don't look at it. And this is something that was brought home to me by a couple of brothers who, who came and questioned me and said, we realized that our pastor did not have our best interests in mind. And they came to understand that the pastor had never checked any of this information out himself. One, one pastor actually admitted it. He actually said over the pulpit, he said, I started looking at it, but it made my head hurt, so I just stopped. I, I remember my, my last pastor, um, you know, when I, when I left the message, his name is Stephen Dilo. When I confronted him, and I gave him all the, the details of the cloud story. And he listened to me very, very intently. And when I was done, he said to me, if what you tell me is the truth, then William Branham is a false prophet. I still said to him, Brother Stephen, I didn't say that. You said that. Then he promised me he was going to look into it and come back to me. To this day, I haven't heard from Stephen Dealer. Yeah. You know, the sad part is, James, I think, is that there are there are good message ministers, as an example, uh, who have left the message. Some of them recently, um, Tim Humes comes to mind, uh, who basically honestly took a look at the message and some of the stories like the cloud vision and and actually like yourself actually did the study. And they made the decision that they could not follow the message given what they learned. So uh, it's it's gratifying to know that people that actually search scripture and compare it to the message, they get it pretty quickly. Those people that don't bother but essentially say my pastor is correct, they may never get it. And that's the sadness of it. Yeah, I have only run into one or maybe two people who have looked at the facts honestly and then decided to stay in the message. And they have admitted that they actually think that the facts are correct. There is a significant likelihood that William Branham was not who he said he was or who message preachers say that he is or was. But because of ties to family, and friends, they weren't prepared to leave what what is in effect a very comfortable community inside the message. That is also a very very sad approach, but um, you know we 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 do have that as well. Yeah, yeah. 
I've, I've come across a few message pastors here in South Africa that now openly um, admit that um, everything in the message is not true and correct, but um, they're not willing to move. Big cost. People, people like Jeff Jenkins, and I'm sure this has cost you a lot, James. It has, yeah. Where it's cost them their livelihood because they didn't have any kind of training at anything outside of preaching the message. Mm, mm. Well, their livelihood, their association with people, their friendships, in some aspects, their family, it comes at a huge cost when when those folks like Jeff Jenkins or other message ministers choose to leave. Yeah, that's correct. It's 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 really like leaving a culture. You know, I'm someone who's gone and lived in another culture for almost six years. And I say it was almost my second transition from one culture to relearning a brand new culture, because I feel when I left the message um, in my early 20s, I mean, I had to learn everything I thought I knew within the message constraints. I had to relearn. I had to learn new vocabulary. I had to learn how to interact with people. How did church work? What did this look like? You know, so it's terrifying. And I, you know, it's, it's sad to hear that people have seen the discrepancies, but choose to stay. But I understand it because it's hard. People say, oh, you just couldn't live, live the message. You left. It was easier for you. No, it's pretty hard leaving the message and you lose. It it's pretty it's, hard. Yeah. Yeah, you got to count the cost. You better believe it. That's pretty hard. James, moving to a a slightly different subject, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, and says that if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus that we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, he said you put up with it easily enough. And that was a criticism of the Corinthian church. Does the message preach another Jesus or, as Paul said, a different gospel? What does the Jesus outside the message look like to you compared to the Jesus of the message? What what has the transition been like for you and what have you learned? That brings us to the end of part one of our interview with James Manuel. I hope you enjoyed hearing more of James' story. Please join us next month for part two of our interview. If you have any questions, please go to our website at offtheshelf.life. There is space for comments and questions at the bottom of each episode, or you can email us at rod at offtheshelf.life. Please let us know if there are any issues or questions that you think we should address or someone we should consider interviewing. Thank you very much for listening. And remember that God loves you and is not afraid of your questions. Have a great week.